as, as we all know, um, we've been going through a lot of discussions and working to solve our, I feel odd saying space problem this morning because we don't have a space problem this morning, but most Sunday mornings we do. So, uh, especially in the children's church department. And so, um, in the board, we've been having a lot of discussions about the way moving forward, and we have, a, we have a decision. We know what we're going to do. We're going to be signing a lease uh, to take over the other half of this building. We'll be turning over the upstairs back, back to the landlord um, and expanding again onto both sides. This is gonna be a challenge at many levels, but it's something that we need to do. And so to share that, uh, Chris Smith has offered to stand and explain to us all uh, the financial side and any other thing else you want to talk about uh, of the challenge that's before us. So, Chris, it's yours. And if you would, we want to get it recorded, so get friendly. <coughs> Into the mic. All right. So, um, yes, I'm Chris Smith. I'm a member of the church board. Uh, I kind of want to bring two things, essentially, to your attention um, <coughs> and consideration. Uh, number one, yes, as you as uh, was just announced, uh, we've decided, we've, you know, all the best options, because, you know, we've been having the space issue of all the best options that, that we've been looking at right now available for us. Taking on the lease on the other side was the best option for one year. Um, <coughs> um, the first issue is that giving up to a few months ago has kind of been break even for the church. So we've been doing well with nothing new. This represents something new. So the taking on this other side represents a $2,700 increase in our monthly lease payments. And so the first thing is we like is I'd like to ask you to, to consider um, each, if each household were to give an additional 100 to $200 a month, that would easily cover it. Um, taking on this other side basically solves our whole, it gives us a lot of options and ways to deal with our space, whether we meet on that side or we have the kids on that side, expanding our ministries. Um, so a lot of fun options that are available. And again, that was the, that was the, uh, the one that, was, that made the most sense in multiple fashions uh, for us. It just represents an additional, an additional 2700 so, but for each household, if each household were to give um, $100 to $200 a month in addition, that would be, that would take care of that. The other thing is a bit bigger. Um, so just on the church board, so the person who owns this building, Dan Hardy, he's still a lease scene. And so this is going to represent roughly $70,000, $80,000 a year, which we on the board feels is just not a responsible stewardship of the money for a long term. Um, it you know, so taking on this other lease was like the best option short term, but for long term, we really want to consider something where we can own as a church body. Um, so as a board, we look at a couple different options, and after kind of like, you know, we're kind of like a crunch, we got to like, where are the kids going to be? You know, besides playing around in the street and on the rocks, pal. Um, and now there's a cool fun hole over there, I guess, but I don't think that's really an option. So... Um, but just as a church, kind of looking at what, where do we want to go, where do we want to build, you know, um, the most responsible thing we feel on the church board would be to own something. And then, well, what does that mean to own something? What do we own as a church, as a church body? And so um, a lot of the options that we have kind of range between, you know, if we, if we didn't have any extra funds, then we have to work with another church and share space with another church. Um, two, if we had sufficient funds, we really felt like the church... Um, the fellowship was really behind this and we committed to this, um, you know, we could potentially look for land and build our own facility, which in my mind would be the ideal situation. 
um, or to buy our own facility and just really make it ours. So to that end, that's what the survey was for last, last week. To that end, w consider what you can give to that. Um, we were initially looking at um, maybe a 10 to 20% down payment if we want to build or buy. That's hitting up into the $100,000 range. Um, so that is looking at an additional four to $600 a month, um, which I know is a stretch for some people. Um, but just please consider that. You know, as the board, as we're looking at really expanding what this church can be, what this church can really own and do, um, not just for the kids, but for us and for other ministries that we could get into, um, we kind of want to see gauge the level of, I guess not necessarily commitment, but what do you really feel like you can support? What can you feel like you can really get behind? Um, so for a year, we're just kind of like addressing this and asking you to give extra again, um, maybe somewhere in, in addition to the other side, and maybe an additional four to five hundred dollars a month. Um, that would give us enough of a cushion to be able to afford a down payment on something a year from now. So that's kind of looking at a look. That's what we're kind of looking at. Um, but the board looking what our options are and the first part of that option is really gauging what's the fellowship really going to, you know, what can you, what can you guys really get behind? What can the fellowship really commit and support you feel good about? This is where we want to own. This is who we want to be. So again, if you have any questions, um, Chris, I'll be a little around a little later today. And of course there's John and so thank you. What we're looking for is just a gauge of sentiment, where the fellowship is as far as our moving forward in the areas of ministry that the Lord is calling us and directing us. Because the, the truth is, if we don't move forward, we slide back. And I don't know that that would be faithful to God's calling either. So, enough said about that. Let's open our Bibles this morning. Um, the day of Pentecost is coming up. It's next week. And so that's what we're going to be talking about. Uh, if you would, in your Bibles, open them to Leviticus chapter 23. Leviticus chapter 23. If you don't know where that is, you probably do know where the table of contents is. Don't be ashamed about using the table of contents. I use it a lot. Right? So mark Leviticus 23 and then turn to the book of Acts chapter 2. So we're going, to talk, we're going to be talking about the day of Pentecost for the next couple of weeks, right? Um, unless you come from a liturgical church background, that is a church that pays a lot of attention to the church calendar. Some may not know there is such a thing as a church calendar. Um, you maybe have never paid a lot of attention to the day of Pentecost. Uh, it's a church holiday. It's a church uh, festival, if you will, a remembrance um, which is largely neglected, unfortunately, possibly because of its, its association in a lot of people's minds with a particular expression of faith, Pentecostalism. And there are certainly a, a reasonable association there. But the day of Pentecost is, is, is bigger than that. It really is. It's, it's more than that. Uh, in the early church, the church of the first several centuries, uh, the celebration of the day of Pentecost was second only to uh, celebration of the resurrection. Only Easter, as we would call it, was a bigger day than the day of Pentecost. So it's, it's a big deal. Was and is. So Acts chapter 2, which is where we're going to start. Uh, the apostle writes, or Luke writes, And when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. King James says, when the day of Pentecost was fully come, 
probably better translation. Let's pray and ask the Lord to bless our, our time together in His Word. Father, we thank You for oh, the gorgeous, gorgeous weather You've given us these last many days, Father. We're thankful for it. Lord, we get to enjoy it, appreciate it, Lord. Um, Father, we're mindful that many today, uh, their thoughts are on the lives of loved ones lost, Lord, that we can enjoy the freedom that we have. Father, we pray you'd minister to their hearts today, Lord, and ask you'd minister to us through your word as we look to it in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, in the early church, this holiday that we celebrate next week, the day of Pentecost, was a big, big deal. Uh, St. Vasili, or Basil, yeah, just like the spice, um, really, really important early church father of the fourth century, um, one of the main, main uh, leaders of the church in the first four centuries. He wrote this about the day of Pentecost and what we celebrate on the day of Pentecost. He said, through the Holy Spirit comes our restoration to paradise, our ascension into the kingdom of heaven, our return to the adoption as sons, our liberty to call God our Father our being made partakers of the grace of Christ, our being called children of light, our sharing in eternal glory, in a word, our being brought into a state of all the fullness of blessing, both in this world and in the world to come. So this, this thing we celebrate on the day of Pentecost is really, really big. And um, we, start, we start that by looking again, Acts chapter 2, verse 1, you recognize it. And if, and if you listen to that verse carefully, there's like three key components or words or phrases in that, that single verse that really stand out. And that's going to be the, the structure we're going to follow um, this, this morning in the next two weeks. First, the day of Pentecost. It makes reference to the day of Pentecost. And then it uses this phrase, fully come or fulfilled in some translations. And then that last phrase, all together in one accord. What, what does that mean? And we're going to be looking through those three phrases the next three weeks, trying to get a picture of exactly what this is all about. Because you say the day of Pentecost, and a lot of it, some, some you know what it is, but a lot of folks just go, I really don't know exactly what that is. So we're going to try to answer that question. Um, not only see what it is, but how important it is to us. So this morning, our focus is the day of Pentecost, exactly what was, what is the day of Pentecost? Well, in short, it's one of the three main Hebrew feasts. If, if you know your Old Testament, uh, you know that three times a year, uh, and it's spelled out very clearly in the law, three times a year, all the Jewish men, and that would imply families with them, were to come to Jerusalem. Again, many of you know this. Uh, the first was Passover. And with Passover, there was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. A lot of these festivals combined more than one idea together. So in the spring, early spring, there was the Feast of Passover, Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the second was the Feast of Weeks, which is also called the Feast of Harvest, which is also called the Feast of First Fruits, which is also called the Day of Pentecost. We'll talk about the variety of names there. That was the second one. And it celebrated harvest. That's what it was all about, the harvest, right? And then, of course, the third... Uh, was the Feast of Tabernacles or booths, or we could properly say tents. They gathered in Jerusalem, they lived in tents, and with that, of course, we associate the Day of Atonement. So those are the three feasts. Now these feasts all have some things in common that we should be aware of as we, as we look at them. The first is that, uh, again, they, it was commanded that any Jew that could would come to Jerusalem and, and participate in that, okay? Um, the second thing is they all relate in one way or another back to the exodus from Egypt, right? The Passover, that's pretty obvious, right? The 
angel, they put the blood on their doorpost, the angel of death passed over them, right? The unleavened bread element of that is because they left Egypt too quickly for their bread to rise. So it was literally unleavened bread. So that's how that one works. Uh, Pentecost is a little different because it's, it's a celebration of harvest, but it also points to the harvest that they found when they entered the land. We'll talk about that. When the children of Israel entered the land, everything was already you know, planted, ready to go. Whether you know, grain or fruit, or, it was already planted. And they were able to harvest that. So while Passover points to the beginning of the Exodus experience, the flight from Egypt, uh, the Feast of Pentecost, or harvest through weeks, kind of points to the end. And then in the middle, we have the Feast of Tabernacles, which is a reminder that they lived in tents. That the 40 years they were in the wilderness, they lived in tents, and God provided for them and took care of them, and everything you know, was okay. So all of these point back to um, the wilderness journey, leaving Egypt, coming into the present land. They're also, and this is really critical, they're also all intended to bring those past events into the present. The idea was not just to remember those events, but to bring them into the present. And this is so important. If you've ever, um, ever been through a Passover, the Passover Seder, you know there's a certain... There's a certain, it's a question and answer kind of a format. And one of the really critical questions is when a member of the family says to the father, why do we do all this stuff? Right? Your kids ever ask you that? Why are we doing all this stuff? Why do we have all this stuff in the Passover? And the answer, the answer, it's laid out, it's very specific, is that, and I quote, in each generation, each one must see themselves as if they left Egypt. So in the mind of the Passover participant, it's not just that my great, great, back 2,000 years ancestor left Egypt. It's quite literally that I will see myself as having left Egypt. It's to bring that experience into the present. And, you know, I think that's, you know, while we're talking about Memorial Day, kind of an unrelated and yet related subject, that's a really good way to look at Memorial Day and to help us remember its importance. Because the vast majority of us haven't lost a loved one, a family member, or friend in service of our country. But you don't have to go back many generations, and that wasn't the case. Uh, my parents knew a lot of men that didn't come back. And grandparents knew a lot that didn't come back. If we can, in our minds, see ourselves in that same place, it's harder for us because our experience is so different. But if we can bring their experience into our thinking, I think that helps us see what Memorial Day is all about. It takes a certain mental exercise, right? But the, these three feasts were designed to bring the past into the present. So they had a lot in common. When we focus on the day of Pentecost, there is something specific to be remembered. There is something specific to be brought into the present, seen as a present reality. Well, what's that supposed to be? Well, to figure that out, let's go back to that Leviticus passage. And there's actually several passages that speak to this, that we could look to, but Leviticus probably gives us the most detail. In this particular part of Scripture, in the book of Leviticus, uh, the law is being given and it's spelling out this particular sacrifice. And at the point we pick up Leviticus, he's already talked about Passover, and now he's shifting to the day of Pentecost or the Feast of Weeks. And in verse 15, it starts this way. You shall also count for yourselves from the day after the Sabbath. Now, the Sabbath that he refers to in verse 15 would have been the Sabbath immediately after the Passover, right? 
And if there were, in fact, days in between, it might even fall in between. But he's talking about something in verse 15 right immediately after Passover. You shall also count for yourselves from the day after the Sabbath, from the day when you brought in the sheaf of the wave offering, there shall be seven complete Sabbaths. If you're a math whiz, you know where this is going, right? Okay. You shall count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath, and you shall present a new grain offering to the Lord. You shall bring in from your dwelling places two loaves of bread for a wave offering made of two cents of an ephah, and they shall be a fine flour baked with leaven as the first fruit to the Lord. Along with the bread, you shall present, a, you shall present seven one-year-old male lambs without defect, a bull of the herd, two rams. They are to be a burnt offering to the Lord with their grain offerings and their libations, an offering by fire of a soothing aroma to the Lord. You shall also offer one male goat for a sin offering. And two male lambs, one year old, of a sacrifice for peace offering. And the priest shall then wave them with the bread of the first fruit for a wave offering with the two lambs before the Lord. They are holy to the Lord for the priest. Right? So that lays out the, format, the formality of how this festival um, was supposed to work, how the day of Pentecost was supposed what exactly is happening. Okay, well, verse 15, I've already pointed out, refers to right after Passover. What happens right after Passover? The harvest starts. The spring harvest of grain starts. And that's a really critical harvest because the last thing they harvested was several months ago. So they've come through this really lean period of the winter where they weren't sure if they were going to make it or not, right? Because they live from, literally from harvest to harvest. Well, right after Passover is when they start that spring harvest. It started with the barley harvest, and then it went to the wheat harvest, right? And, you know, they're excited about fresh bread, right? But before they ate anything, they took the first fruit of that first harvest in the spring, and they brought it to the Lord. That's the first fruit concept that we read about. So it starts right after Passover, right? And, th and that, of course, is also, and I say this by way of association, the principle by which we practice giving in our experience, now we, we're not under the law, it's not a law that we tithe, but it is a principle that the people of God express our trust in God by giving, by giving God the very beginning of our income, the first fruits, if you will. We can say a lot more about that, and we probably will in the next, next several months. But this is where it starts. The idea of when they first brought in this grain, the first thing they did was they gave God, they gave God a tenth of it. That's where that principle comes from. So they would bring in that new grain and they would present it to the Lord. And then it says in verse 16, you'll count off 50 days. This is where the name Pentecost comes from, right? Because it makes, it makes sense to refer to this as the Feast of Harvest because they're celebrating harvest, right? It makes sense to refer to this as the Feast of Weeks because they counted off seven weeks. Why is it called Pentecost? Well, as we've said before, by the time we get to the first century, most Jews didn't speak Hebrew. Most of them didn't live in Judea, Israel, what we might call Palestine. Most of them lived outside, scattered across the Roman Empire. And they did not speak Hebrew, so the Old Testament had been translated into Greek for them because they all spoke Greek. We call that the Septuagint. It's a really useful tool for us, right? Well, in the Septuagint, when it says 50 days, it is Pentecostis Imeris, 50 days. Pentecost is the Greek word for 50. So that's why this Greek word ends up as an identity for a Jewish festival. That's why we called it the Day of Pentecost. So they would count off the 50 days, 
This was the period in which they completed the grain harvest. Okay? So they had 50 days after Passover, complete the grain harvest, and then they would bring in another offering from that harvest and present it to the Lord. And that's what's going on in verses 16. Now verses 17, 18, and 19, there are all these animal sacrifices, these blood sacrifices, lambs, a calf, and a goat. And a reasonable question would be, why, if this is a festival that's all about harvest, it's all about the grain that we got, and the grain we just finished, and the grain we present, why are why is all these animal sacrifices involved? Well, it's simple. Throughout the people of Israel's entire relationship with God, it didn't matter what was being discussed, you could not separate it from the need of a blood sacrifice. Because these are, these are still a people. Yeah, they're in a covenant relationship with God. God has called them out of Egypt, miraculously delivered them. They're still carnal people, just like us. And in order for them to, to function in the presence of a holy God, the picture of the blood sacrifice had to be there. You couldn't, they couldn't do any business with God without the image of the blood sacrifice. And we're no different. We are no different. If, if there is an element of our Christian experience that isn't traced right back to the cross and right back to, to the empty tomb, it shouldn't be a part of our Christian experience. Everything we do as the people of God is rooted in the cross. Everything we do as a people of God is rooted in the empty tomb. And if it doesn't come from that, if it can't be traced back to that, if it doesn't express that, then it's, then it's not a valid part of our Christian experience. We need to look at it very, very carefully. So they had to make all these offerings. Then in verse 21, uh, they were basically told that's going to happen forever. That's the way it's going to be, right? right? It's true of them, very well true of us. And so that's what they're all about remembering. The harvest, the sacrifice that made the harvest meaningful, right? So exactly then, what are they supposed to be thinking? What is, the, what is the lesson that they're supposed to learn as they finish this or as they participate in this festival? Well, two passages of Scripture were read as they all gathered. They didn't just gather to Jerusalem, make the sacrifice, and have a good time. There's two large blocks of Scripture that were read. Uh, the first was from Exodus. They read 19 and 20. It was read at the temple. And then from Deuteronomy, they read chapters 14 and 16. And that was all about God giving them the law and how important it was for them to fulfill the law. So by, as just kind of a side note, if, if, if you research this stuff, you may discover that this festival, when the Jews practiced it in later years, not only celebrated the harvest, but the giving of the law. Now that's a later addition. It's not found in Scripture. But at the Feast of Weeks, or the Feast of Pentecost, is when the Jews specifically respond to the fact that just as harvest was given them, the Word of God was given them at Mount Sinai. So it's all, it's all connected there. But there's another passage of Scripture that I think brings insight into what this day of Pentecost was really all about for the Jews when they celebrated. In Joshua 24, verse 13, we read this. God says to the people of Israel, I gave you a land on which you had not labored and cities which you had not built. And you've lived in them, and you're eating of the vineyards and the olive groves, which you did not plant. It's not just the stuff they planted. 
which then grew that they brought to the Lord. But Joshua reminds them that at the very outset, when you first came into the land, you didn't have to plant anything. You didn't have to build anything. It had already been built for you. The cities were built by the Canaanites. The fields were planted by the Canaanites. The olive trees and the fig trees, and the, they, they were planted by the Canaanites, who, by the way, were not simply removed because God wanted to give the Jews a home. No. Scripture is very clear. Their iniquity had risen to a level that God could not tolerate them. Their iniquity was overwhelming. They were a grossly evil people. And God wiped them out for that reason. And Israel was the recipient of the labor they had done. And part of what, part of what is remembered in the day of Pentecost is not just that they planted grain and worked really hard. I, I've been around farmers twice in my life. Um, Joyce has, a, has family that are farmers in Oregon and Idaho. And I have family that are farmers in Greece. Seen the job, don't want it. They work really hard. I mean, really hard. And um, so, yeah, the Jews planted and they worked hard and they raised crops, but there's more to it than that. God reminds them that even at the very outset, you were harvesting stuff that was not the byproduct of your energies alone, right? Part of the message of Pentecost for them and also for us is to be mindful that even at our best, at our most productive best, are we planned it, we designed it, we laid it out, we built it, and we're enjoying the benefits of it best, it's still all dependent on him. It is still entirely dependent on him. Uh, if you've been watching the, the film series, The Chosen, you'll notice they're really careful to include something that whenever, they, whenever the disciples wake up, what's the first thing they do? They pray. All devout Jews, when they wake up, the first thing they do is pray. And it's a very specific prayer. Thank you, O Eternal Father, for restoring my soul as I trust in you. In other words, I went to bed last night trusting God that I'd wake up the next morning. And sure enough, I did. And I'm strengthened and I'm restored by the sleep that you've given. Even the mere act of rising in the morning is a demonstration of his faithfulness and his generosity. It's good for us to be mindful that at our best, at our most productive best, when we've accomplished something to be really proud of, it's a good idea to remember that we're still completely dependent upon him. It's one of the reasons I love dip knitting. Good, 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 it's, a good, it's a good visual, you know. I mean, you can gear up and equip up and get all the stuff and drive down there and park on the beach. And it is, it's hard work. It's work, right? But you know what? If those fish don't show up, it's a total and complete waste of time. And there's absolutely nothing we do that has anything to do with that. Are you going to stand on a beach and call them? No. That's an act of God's provision and his goodness and his grace. It's a very powerful illustration of even with all our planning and effort, we're still completely dependent on him. Right? So that's what the day of Pentecost was all about. It was looking backwards, seeing God's great provision, and then looking forward to count on all that was coming. Because even as they were celebrating, gathering in all the wheat, they got a bunch of harvests that are waiting. 
And, and at, the, at the risk of allegorizing the text a little bit, I'm really careful about this, I don't like to do it, um, they just brought in the, the, you know, the barley and the wheat, bread. The, the basic sustenance of their diet, bread. What's waiting? Figs, dates, um, pomegranates, right? The really good stuff. I mean, I like bread as much as the next guy, right? But, you know, you put a plate of figs and pomegranates and dates and that kind of stuff in front of me, I'm really happy. Yeah, all that good stuff is waiting. So they're not only thanking him for the, 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 what was been given, but they're looking forward for the really great stuff to come. And they're confident that he will bring all of that to pass. So there's both elements there, right? Oh, and chickpeas, chickpeas. Now, I know chick, not many of us get excited about chickpeas, right? Unless you like hummus. Yeah, yeah. Makes that bread so much better, right? So all that good stuff is coming. And they could concentrate and anticipate that, right? That's what the day of Pentecost. It's kind of a turning point in their, in their season. So to get back to the book of Acts, um, the disciples following Jesus' ascension, according to his instructions, uh, they returned from the Mount of Olives. He went up after 40 days. Now remember, he's, it says he was with them 40 days. And then he... Took him to the Mount of Olives. He ascended to heaven, right? So 40 days, Pentecost is 50. It happens 10 days before Pentecost. There's a 10-day window there. And he told them to stay in the city and wait for what the Father had promised them, what was going to happen, right? So what we're doing is we're kind of setting the stage here for what's going to happen on that first day of Pentecost, at least the first in the book of Acts, right? The disciples have gone back into the city where they're going to wait for 10 days, for what they don't exactly know. They don't, Jesus didn't tell them what it was going to look like. All he said was, you wait in the city for the promise of the Father. Okay. What's that going to look like? Well, you'll find out when it happens. Right? They're in the city. They're waiting. At the same time, Jerusalem is starting to fill up with people all over again. It was stuffed full of people. Jerusalem's a really small city. Anybody has been there know that. It is not a big city. It's very small. It's, it's compact. In fact, Scripture refers to it as a compact city. And it is getting stuffed with people coming back for this next major festival, right? And so the city is filling up. The hotels are full. The B&Bs are full. KOA is maxed out. They're using the excess parking. I mean, the city's getting stuffed full of people. The disciples are upstairs waiting, and there's two very different sets of expectations at work here, right? This huge crowd coming in from all over the empire. We're going to find out when we get into chapter 2. All over the empire, they're jamming into this city, and what are they expecting? Pentecost as usual. You know, make some offerings, a couple sacrifices, Big part, hear some of the law read and get to you know, see old friends. Great, big, it was intended to be a time of celebration party, right? But the disciples, they have a totally different expectation. And that's really the point here. They know something's going to happen, but they don't know what it is. All they have is what Jesus taught them and what Jesus promised them, what they watched him do, uh, and what they know he said of the future. What did he say of their future? He said, go into all the world, make disciples of all, the, and I'm with you to the very end of the age. Kind of shy on details, right? What they really have, what the disciples really have, and we're going to pick this up and focus on it next week, is they have a very, very big promise that is yet unmet. 
Jesus made a lot of promises about what would happen after he left. And so far, they're unmet. Just, just I think, a brief you know, summary of what was promised to them. Acts 1-4, Jesus said, Wait for what the Father promised, which he said you heard of for me. Not much detail there. Uh, Luke 2, uh, 24-49, Behold, I'm sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you're to stay into the city until you're clothed with power from on high. Okay, we've got one clue there. It's going to be powerful. Whatever it is, there's going to be power. Um, John 14, 16, And I will ask the Father, he will give you another helper, another comforter, another paraclete. He'll be with you forever. Okay, there's going to be some element here that God's going to be with us, Jesus is going to be with us. John 14, 26, The helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. So there's going to be an element when this promise is fulfilled of, of enlightening their brains to start remembering the things that Jesus said. And if they were at all like me, that was really good news because they were already starting to forget. Like, what did Jesus say about that? Can't remember. Oh, the Holy Spirit said when he came, he'd help us with that. That's good. That's good. And then John 15, 26, when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness of me. So they got that to bank on. So there are some things they have been told about what it's going to look like when whatever happens, happens. But there's a whole lot of questions, too. There's a whole lot they just don't know. They have a promise, a lot to it, but what it will look like, frankly, they have no idea. So here's the application. Here's the, really the question for them and the question for us. How do you trust in a promise when you have complete and total faith in the person that made it but you have very little idea what they're talking about. Very little idea what it's going to look like, right? Because the day of Pentecost is all about a promise that is only starting to be fulfilled. It has, and, so, and, they, and it hasn't started yet for them. It's a promise they couldn't have had much understanding of that, right? Now, they, they clearly had a good deal of trust in it. And if you ever thought about this or not, but in those first couple chapters of Acts, there's not a single defection. 120 people went into that upper room. 120 were there on the day of Pentecost. Not a single person. So they had tremendous confidence in whatever Jesus was going to do. That's extraordinary, right? How do you hang on to a promise when you really don't know all that it means? Well, what you do is you look back on the one that gave it. You look on the track record of the one that gave it. See, I would suggest that the disciples, all 120, went to the upper room simply because Jesus told them to. But what kept them in the upper room, despite whatever fears they might have had, despite whatever, because, I mean, you know, they're still not exactly, you know, favorites of the powers that be in Jerusalem, right? Whatever kept them there, despite their fears, despite their questions, was the knowledge of what they had seen Jesus do in the past. I'm here because he told me to be here, and I'm staying here despite the risks, despite the questions, despite my fears, because I saw what Jesus did in the past. I know he's good to his word. You know, we live in pretty uncertain days, don't we? It's like everybody I talk to is like, I don't know what's coming down the pipe. I don't know what's happening. People are so uneasy, so 
unsettled on top of that. We still have this really big job that Jesus gave us going into all the world, making disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey all that he taught us, baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, trying to get that done while at the same time dealing with all the unease we have. But Jesus did tell us he would empower us, even as he empowered them. He said, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes. You shall be my witnesses. And he added this to it, I'll be with you always. So even though we don't have a lot of details, we still have the same promise they did. More importantly, it comes from the same person their promise came from. What gives us hope and confidence in very troubled times, very uncertain times, is not the detail of the promise, it's the person that made it. Because we know the character of the person that made it. What, what it will look like going forward, I have no idea. I have no idea what our world is going to look like going forward, right? And I'm okay with that. I have to be okay with that. And you have to be okay with that. Because you know what? Getting frustrated about it and getting anxious, has that helped anybody? You really gotten upset or, or anxious? Did that, did that help you get through the day? No, it just makes it worse. We have to learn to be okay with the questions, and not just because, you know, not the whistling in the dark, but because we know the one who said he would be with us. Like the disciples in the upper room, I have to be okay with waiting. Like the disciples in the upper room, I have to be okay with not knowing. For them, the day of Pentecost is coming. For us, that reality has already happened, but it's working out in my life, that also is coming. And just as God was faithful then, we have absolute confidence he will be faithful now. Just as he met with them, he meets with us, and he's promised that he always, always will. Father, I thank you that though we live in genuinely uncertain days, Lord. Father, I can say, Father, I've never lived in a time when there were more questions in my mind, uh, more questions, doubts, and fears of the minds of the people around. What was coming our way? People just don't know, and they're upset, Father. And that's reasonable. But it's also true, Father. It is also manifestly reasonable that we stop and consider who has promised to be with us to never forsake us, and to dwell within us by your Spirit, Lord. Father, that is the source of our confidence. That is the source of our calm, even in the midst of troubled days. Help us, Father, to be mindful of that. Father, as, if we can walk through this week, Lord, with that kind of confidence, when all around us are nervous and upset and worried, Lord, that will speak the power of your presence in our world. And that starts the conversation that we need to have with people, Lord. So help us, we pray, to that end in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's just stand and worship the Lord.